This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes as well as some of the challenges they faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today is the first part of a two-part series with Darren Whitaker. Darren is the founder of Network Global Solutions, a global sourcing company. With over 20 years of experience in international trade, Darren uses his extensive network of manufacturers and suppliers to source your required products. In today's episode, Darren takes us through the product sourcing process and the legal considerations involved. You'll learn what a procurement partner does, understand the legal requirements that your business may need to follow under the Modern Slavery Act, and get tips when obtaining products for your business. Let's jump in. Darren, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to join me on The Bottom Line. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a really interesting topic we're going to talk about today, so I'm really, really interested to take a deep dive into your professional expertise and what you do. But for those that don't know you, can you please tell us just a little bit about yourself? Melbourne born and bred, studied international trade back in the day and pretty much evolved my career in that field. Shown an interest in, in athletics for some time, a bit of golf, a bit of surfing. Let's dive into what you do um, as a profession. You, you're the director and founder of Network Global Solutions, NGS. Tell us a little bit about your business. What does it do and what services does it offer? The primary function of the business is sourcing products and components for other businesses. We do assist companies and advise them in all aspects of international trade. But the primary function is sourcing products and components for other businesses. So if a business either consumes enough of a product or on-sells enough of a product, for say, to justify going to Asia to save costs but don't have the skill set, don't have the time to do something like that, they may be purchasing off someone else that's importing, wholesaling, they're paying finance, they're paying staff, they're paying to keep the lights on and the forklift. What we do is we source a product, we customise that product, add value wherever we can and ship direct from the factory to that client. So everyone in the industry may all use a round part and they think there could be a benefit for a square one. We can do that square one. We can add their brand to it and ship it straight to them. That's amazing. Do you see yourself more of as an intermediary between the factories and the suppliers and the client or do you handle the shipment where you actually on charge? How does that little part work? What's the way that you kind of go about that? We see ourselves as an extension of our customer's business. So a typical customer may turn over, say, 30 million. There may be three or four directors, typically as a director of finance, a director of operations, sales. There's very rarely a director of procurement. And usually for these businesses to trust someone, one of their employees to go to China that may move on to another company, it's quite risky and they leave themselves quite vulnerable. So one of those directors has to be the one that gets on the plane and does all this work and they may not have the skill set. Not only that, they're taking the eye off their existing department, so the operations or the sales like we uh, mentioned earlier. So outsourcing that and giving it completely to another business, 
we're not by any ways tied into this model, but we typically sell to our customers DDP, so delivered duty paid, to their door in Australian dollars plus GST if they're an Australian customer. So they can forecast, they know what's coming is right, and they've got a, a local Australian business that they can yell out if things go wrong, which doesn't happen. But it's a lot easier to deal with someone locally and with Australian laws and whatnot than with a faceless factory overseas. Take us back to how you got this experience a little bit, because just before we just dive into it a little bit more, obviously you've got amazing contacts in Asia and around the world. Tell us a little bit about the journey. How did you build up those contacts, that expertise? I actually floated the idea of this business to some guys that I knew that were about 30, 40 years older than me when I was in my 20s. They ended up doing it. I worked for them. I didn't quite like the model. They didn't follow through the model that I did. They were losing money. We ended up doing it my way for a short period of time, but I either had to make a decision to go out on my own or become a director of that company. And there were certain things that weren't kosher with me. So I went out on my own. It's probably a little bit premature, but to start off, we're talking 15 years ago, I went over to China. I spent weeks there, back and forth, going to trade fairs, going to factories. Over the last, I say 15 years, the last three years, there hasn't been too much travel, obviously, with COVID. But I've probably been to north of 500 factories over around 50 trips to Asia. Wow. Pers personally, so you built the right relationships. I hope you like Chinese food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that's awesome because it really gives a bit of a perspective on the skill and the level of how deep you've dived into that. And do you speak Mandarin or Cantonese? Do you have a little bit of a dialogue or you probably don't need that these Mail. days? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive in a little bit. What factors do you consider when selecting suppliers? So just take me through a journey of a client. They come and see you. It's a brand new customer. I don't know. They're importing one import widgets or I don't know, T-shirts or something like that. And they say, Darren, you need to give us a chop out here. We need some help. We don't know how to do this. We're a smallish business. Take us through that journey and just give our listeners a bit of a guidance on, on how NGS and yourself take that process and source it and, and client interaction. Typically, and one of the great benefits of NGS is that I have the experience and the connection. So if someone comes to me with this widget or this idea or product that they'd like to manufacture, more often than not, I already know which factory I'm likely to purchase it from. That doesn't mean I'm anyway hamstrung to that factory. We go through a process where you'd contact two dozen factories, make sure the pricing's right, make sure the lead times are correct, everyone's got the capabilities. Often it ends up going back to the factory that I know the most, but there are processes we go through to verify the factory. Now, for us to turn around to you and say, this is what it's going to cost, these are your options, this is how long it's going to take and whatnot, that's a free process. Almost all our competitors charge for that. Then they'll send auditors out there and they'll charge the client for that, for say the top three orders, give them a presentation of those and then take no responsibility from then on and introduce the client and earn commissions and whatnot, where we take full ownership and responsibility for that process. And when you're selecting the factory, you mentioned you obviously have factories in mind because you've dealt with ones and depending on what the product or the thing that's being manufactured. But take us through when you do consider selecting the supplier of the factory, what are some of the key metrics in your head that you're sort of evaluating when you're selecting a factory? Capability, capacity, quality, geographical location as well. We're getting a few clients looking to diversify outside of China. More often than not, it's not the smartest move, but sometimes it may be. 
Existing relationship, communication is very important. It very much depends on the product, the client, the volume, the commodity value, on which one we're looking at. Some of them may be significant cost savings and require the hand to be held through the process or, or pushed in, which will require more of NGS's time to manage it. So it's always weighing up that. Then we're also obviously looking at ethical and environmental factors with the factory and a socially conscious purchase for our customer. So Darren, I'm a customer of yours and obviously I'm working with you. I've asked you to find some sourcing for me for a product that I want to scale. How does that relationship work? So once you've sourced the product, do I go direct to the factory in China that you've sourced or is my relationship solely with you? I pay the landed cost to you and you take care of the rest. Is it sort of a full circle service operation that you offer? Can you sort of expand on how we interact and how you interact with your clients? We're not in any way limited to one model, but 95 plus percent at least end up evolving into a full service model where all the client needs to do is get an invoice from us. They pay us and we arrange everything. So we have the relationship with the factory. We do all the quality control. We arrange all the freight forwarding and whatnot. We do the customs clearance and we deliver to your door as it's been ordered. So that's awesome. So the example we had where the 3D molding and it went to crap and we've got to deal with the problem, in a way you eliminate that because if I go through you, you're in Australia, your office is in Australia, you're the professional, one eliminates that risk. But if something goes wrong, I'm dealing with you, right? I'm not dealing with a factory I can't get a hold of. Is that correct? That's correct. And what's really important, what separates us from a lot of our competitors is we're importing for you. Aside from you benefiting from our Australian Trusted Trader accreditation with top of the pile processing at customs and last in first out at at quarantine, we're the entity that's listed as consignee on the bill of lading. So we've got all the appropriate insurances for that. We go through all the proper due diligence at the factory to make sure the product's right. And there'd be a lot of cost savings by going through, which I'm sure it's part of your business, but I'm sure that that helps you be competitive in the market, such as you mentioned insurance, there's obviously FX and all that kind of stuff. So can you elaborate on how you can save for the client? Obviously our service isn't free. It's built into the product, the cost of the product. But when you amortize that, and we were talking before about director going over to you know, China, say four times a year and all those additional costs and time away from the business. It's easier to justify the margin. But if you're not doing much FX elsewhere, you're not going to get as good FX rates as us. So you know, maybe there's a couple of percent in that. If we make an endorsement on our marine cargo insurance, it's significantly cheaper than doing a standalone policy. Our freight forwarding, we obviously import a lot more containers than just yours. So our rates are better. So a lot of that makes up for at least probably half of our margin. So it makes it a significantly competitive proposition for you. And when you're comparing it to doing it yourself and in-house, you've got to really calculate what are the real costs to your business to do this? And also what are the risks? We will touch on that because it's a big part of what you do at NGS and other services that you provide. And leading into that, part of that is is ensuring that the factories meet with compliance laws, regulations. So can you take us a little bit around what you do there to get that right? We can audit the factory to understand their requirements. We're more interested in our local laws and Australian laws and what they may breach with, say, Modern Slavery Act and whatnot. But more often than not, the good quality ethical factories are typically got significant processes to go through 
to appease their local governments anyway. For us to give them guidance on that is somewhat irrelevant. We're more interested in what they're doing for us. That's awesome. What do you see? Obviously, you provide this amazing product. And I mean, Australia has become less and less manufacturing and going overseas to import. What do you see that a lot of my clients or a lot of businesses do wrong when they go overseas to import, either for the first time or they may even have experience? You're like, you know what? You're small. You don't have the experience. What are some of the common things that people get wrong when they take on this journey or even if they've done it for a little while? It's typically thinking it's a set and forget model and it's not. If you've got an idea and you want to go to China and do what we do and, and source that product, I would dare say it's four trips for your first bulk order. You go over there, you maybe online triaged some factories and you've got three or four that you'll go and inspect and you'll make an assessment on that, see if they've got the right machinery, see if they've got the capability, see if they're good guys to deal with, mm. see how many middlemen are involved to make it confusing and literally Chinese whispers. Then you want to set up tooling or moulds or at least do prototypes if tooling moulds aren't required and that takes time. They have to get materials for it. Do they ship it over? Do you fly over and have a look at it again? Then we manufacture and we start production. Okay, we're going through, are they producing it correctly through the stages? If you've got a six or eight week manufacturing lead time, what's happening in those six to eight weeks? How important is your lead time with your delivery to your customers? Can you deliver your service if you don't receive this product on time? What happens if you go at the last minute and do a pre-shipment inspection and something's wrong and you need to find yourself another eight weeks to fix it? So having a set and fit go, they, they managed to produce a prototype, which they may have, depending on the product, let's say it's a plastic product, they may have 3D printed it, but you need to set up a mold and you can't 3D print it in volume, in, volume yeah. Yeah, in a feasible manner. So can they produce it with injection molding with the same quality or is there different thicknesses that cause the product to fail or something like that? Well, what happens, let's say that journey with a client, they've gone down the process, picked the factory, it's done by 3D, like, yeah, this is awesome. They go down this rabbit hole, pick the supplier. How does it work? Let's say delivery, 100,000 moulds of plastic product. It's not what the original was. You've probably already paid for the product. You've opened the box. What are the ramifications? What happens there? Obviously, you, NGS, hopefully mitigate a lot of that. But what would happen to a client or customer in Australia and, and that happens? What legal ramifications do they have? How does that all work? Have you encountered that and seen that in the market? Typically, we've got a high conversion rate on clients that have experienced that. Yeah, They've tried to do it themselves and gone down that path. You don't have a lot of recourse. Wow. Your recourse is to negotiate with your factory and typically it's a discount off your next order or you're off your next five orders or 10 orders. And by then, the damage is typically done and you don't want to have anything to do with that factory. You know, they'll fool me once, fool me twice. Sometimes it's not just the capability of the factory, it's the ability to manage the factory to get the output that you want. A lot of them are capable and they may not understand, they may be lazy, they may be looking for a cheaper option. So managing your relationship with the factory for them to output what you want is completely different to the factory having the capability to do it or not. NGS provides this awesome service, but what separates you from your competitors and what's your value that you provide and what, what little secret sauce do you have, Darren, at NGS? One of the greatest stamp of approvals for us is our Australian Trusted Trader Accreditation. The Australian Border Force take us through an auditing process. 
They need to understand our processes at origin, our processes at destination. There's many benefits to being Australian trusted trader. There's only around 700 businesses in Australia that have it. Typically, it's your big companies like your West Farmers and whatnot, or your freight forwarders. Uh, as far as I know, we're the only sourcing company or slash trading company that has the accreditation that sources products for other businesses. Some of the benefits we can pass on to our client is we get top of the pile processing at customs. We're last in, first out at quarantine. So particularly when lead times are quite critical, little things like that can add up. And it's one of those things that you don't really realise the benefit, maybe four out of five or nine out of 10 shipments, but that one you really needed and it gets held up, it can be quite valuable. That's really interesting. The other thing that I was thinking in my mind is not once in this whole conversation did you kind of mention price. Obviously, for our consumers, for our businesses in Australia, price is probably one of the lower things that they consider is probably important. Is that a fair comment? Price is always important, but the way I operate is finding who can do it the best and working out what the price is. And then reverse engineering from them to try to meet the price and discussing with the customer what they're willing to compromise to reach a target price. If a target price is unrealistic, you just turn around the client and say, we can't do it. And if you want to do it, go elsewhere and I wish you luck. If it doesn't work out and you're willing to pay this price, if the price is still valid at that time, we're more than happy. What's your view of China as a manufacturing hub I don't know the stats, but we import so much from China. Just in its current economic climate, as a professional in this world, where do you see the next five years, three years, 12 months? Just just the future of China and Australia importing from China. What do you see the weaknesses or things that our importers need to just think about for the future? It depends on the product you're referring to, what the commodity is, what industry it is. For some parts, it's quite easy to look outside and it's not just the pure cost of the product. There's free trade agreements to consider. There's other taxes. There's anti-dumping taxes. So it's not just a factor of what's the cheapest place to manufacture something and also the destination market, obviously, avoiding, say, anti-dumping tax with aluminium, for example. You can get stung up to 47% if a factory is not compliant with Australia's anti-dumping and There's plenty of other countries you could choose that within that 40% margin. Let's get into some of the compliance. You mentioned anti-dumping. I haven't heard that term yet. And and in my research to this podcast, did that didn't come up. So let's dive into a little bit of the rules and the laws in Australia. So recently, Australia introduced the Modern Slavery Act and, and you provide services around that. So can you tell us, in addition to what NGS does for procurement, can we talk about its service around supplier audit, Slavery Act, introduce that to our listeners? NGS is an authorised agent for Azola Certified. Azola Certified's a new brand where we go and audit the factory of a product. We give guidance to the importer of how to improve that factory, make it more compliant with the Modern Slavery Act, make it more compliant for your ESG and give them guidance over the next 12 months. So our certified clients commit to making ongoing and continuous improvement over the next 12 months and then we go and reassess it. So we give them guidance to do that. So it's a very targeted process at 99% of the problem for maybe 4% of the cost. So if you're an importer, for example, you're importing, you've got a family business, you're importing hammers and you're selling to Bunnings. You may turn over, let's call it $5 million and you've got maybe half a million profit. 
That business isn't under the Modern Slavery Act, which has a minimum threshold of 100 million in Australia and New South Wales of uh, state 50 million plus turnover. So you've got one employee in your business in New South Wales and your business turns over more than $50 million, you're bound by the Modern Slavery Act. Okay. The directors of that company need to sign a statement basically saying all the due diligence they're doing to prevent infringement of the Modern Slavery Act, for example. Now, you could go to one of the big four, spend 150 grand, get an audit of your entire company, a holistic view saying that you import, say, cotton from Vietnam. This is the statistics associated with that. Get your factory to sign a declaration, blah, blah, blah. Go and plant 300 trees somewhere else on the planet and use that as evidence. What we're saying is so many things you don't have control of in your supply chain as an Australian business. You, not many businesses on the planet have influence over what the shipping line does, for example, with relation to their environmental and ethical policies. You've got very limited control over trucking and whatnot when you're typically using a freight forwarder and they're trying to find the cheapest reliable service for you. The one place you've got control is the factory and that's what we audit. We audit the factory and we send someone in that assesses the different, interviews some of the staff, assesses their processes, their HR policies and whatnot and reports back to the client and then they, over the next 12 months, look at making improvements to that factory to make it more compliant. Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part chat. Join us next episode for the conclusion of this conversation. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer, At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952, and we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing, and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.